As you're seated, we come then to the preaching of God's Word, which is found in Luke chapter 21 and verses 1 through 4. Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. We've read already, of course, these verses, but hear them once again to focus our attention. Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And he looked up and saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. He saw also a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. And he said, Of a truth I say unto you, that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have in their abund- of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God, but she of her penury hath ca- cast in all the living that she had. These four verses remind us of the observation of Christ. He has an observing eye that is often observing what men do not. He often sees what escapes our notice, and he must make known to us what he perceives, and we often neglect. This can be both, of course, as on many occasions it is, to our conviction, but it can also be to our great encouragement. And so we see here Christ gazing, watching what's taking place. And as was customary, of course, there would be the drawing near to the temple and giving offerings into the box to receive that offering, which is here mentioned as the treasury. And of course, a scene was there. Notice the rich men, as well as a certain poor widow. Well, how easily men judge by outward appearances. Isn't it the case that we see one who is outwardly beautiful and we think to ourselves, that one is to be desired. We see one who is outwardly rich and we think that one has real value. Well, this is true in the world in all of its ways, of course. There is a constant attention to the outward things. And so status is known by display. Now, some can be ostentatious, but even those who are of less inclined to such ostentation, you can still see it, the way they carry themselves, the clothes perhaps that they wear or don't wear, the neighborhoods that they live in, and so on. These things are outward ways of considering one's status. And we then start to measure men by those things. But even though there's some degree of truth to those things, it's often then brought into religion, to true religion. We start to think there's a servant of God. Why? Because they gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to the cause of Christ. Now let's be clear. There's zero reason to criticize someone if they have great finances or great resources in giving great things to the cause of Christ. But as we see here, notice Christ sees wherein true greatness is found, which is both a check against us, but also an encouragement for us. Remember, as the Lord told Samuel, the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And that's what's going on here. Notice the text there's a recorded observation. As we've already noted, Christ is seeing what everyone else could have seen. Look at these men with all of their dignity, with all of their perhaps servants bringing the loads of gifts to give. 
and they're putting them into the treasury. Notice the language. He saw the rich men casting their gifts into the treasury. And though all men could have seen as much, imagine it caught no one else in their thoughts what Christ notes. He saw a certain poor widow casting in thither two mites. Now it's worth noting something here. A rich man has many resources. Financially, of course, many other things would accompany that. A poor widow is already in a state of difficulty being a widow. But to be impoverished and to be a widow is even far worse. And so with this then, this observation, notice that he sees what she casts, these two mites. Now children, this is almost impossible for you and for me to understand. Those who are the best biblical scholars struggle to quantify exactly what's going on as far as the amount that she's giving. One of the best ways of considering it is one piece of brass, which is what they're casting in. They're casting in these uh, finances, which the term is pieces of brass. So they're giving multitudes of it. She gives a seventh part of one piece. This is just to make it as perhaps clear as we can, less than one of our pennies. So could you imagine this for a moment? Now, we're not in a temple, of course, but say that your eyes saw people coming and they have to actually have help carrying their gifts to the church. Or you see a businessman in a nice suit and he writes his check and it's crisp and clear and you don't see the price, but you know that on that check are multiple digits that perhaps you've never seen in your life. And you see one who brings for our intention, for our our culture, one penny and puts it in the box. What would have been noted by you? What would have been talked of by you? Well, Christ, notice, He sees this, and in the text as well, He gives an explanation with commendation. Notice He has to sort of wield uh, great authority in making this point known. Notice the language, the first words he speaks, of a truth. Why would he say that? But that because we're hesitant to acknowledge what he's about to say. I'm telling you the truth. Now we need to be careful. We often use these kinds of phrases over things that are meaningless. My word, this truth, I'm telling the truth. All of that needs to be set aside. Let your yea be yea and your nay, nay. We have no need to exaggerate the importance of our words. But here Christ is doing this because it's over a matter that is in dispute, if not outwardly by debate, yet inwardly by doubt. He's saying, you don't see this. You need to pay attention. Of a truth, what I'm saying, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. The language here is not just than any one of them, but than all of them put together. This one widow who put in less than one of our pennies gave more than all of the rich men gave put together. How? Well, he explains. He says, all these, the rich men, have of their abundance, of their riches, of their wealth, cast in unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury or poverty, her want, hath cast in all the living that she had. 
Now, it ought to be said, though it's not that big of a point in truth, that her living, the living mentioned here, is likely her day's wages. It's likely not all that she owned, but she's giving up all of the day's wages in service to the Lord. Mark says that she gave of her want all that she had, all her living. And so Christ is directing us to this. And what is He directing us to? Let's be clear. He's not reproving the rich men. That's not the point of this passage. He's not saying, well, the rich men, what are you doing? This is meaningless. He's not doing that at all. But He is directing light to comfort and encourage all who are less and causing us to see something that what the Lord prizes is the exercise of faith and of love. Now you can think of this today. Say somebody were to make for simplicity $10 an hour. And you think that's their own income and they work 8 hours a day. They make $80 a day. And so that would be their day's living. Now what do they need to do with that $80? They need to buy food. They need to pay whatever bills they have. They need to put gas in their car. And you certainly realize this. That goes quickly. It's gone. To take $80 and to say all of it is now devoted to the Lord is going to demand the sacrificial living of that day and of many days to come. What does that demand? It demands faith and it demands love. Why would she give this in the service of the Lord? She has all the arguments, and by the way, far more than you and I have, as to why she should have kept some back. But with all of those arguments, she had one that trumped it all. I trust and I love the Lord. And here's the great encouragement. Though no one seemingly noticed it, though no one seemingly, you would think, recorded in their registry, you know, oh, look at this, $100,000. And, well, this must be a mistake. There are two mites. You know, what do we do with this? Christ, who, by the way, is God to whom she's offering ultimately, is the one who says, I want you to see this. And he's tremendously encouraged and gladdened by this. What's the point? Well, the Lord is teaching us that the Lord sees all, both great and small, and He measures not by human standards, but by the standard of faith and love. She gave more than they all. So this helps us in a number of ways as we'll see. It corrects us when we think, I've done something great for God because I've given in a large measurement what the world would count as great. It also comforts us when we think, what have I to give? I have so little, so few. But the Lord sees that when offered in faith and is well pleased. You can see perhaps examples of this in the Scriptures themselves. So for instance... If you think again of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, here's this encouragement that Paul records in 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 and 2. He mentions, of course, of this great trial that is going about and this great trial of affliction, verse 2. Their deep poverty. And yet notice what he says. He says how that in great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded 
unto the riches of their liberality. So they have deep poverty. It's not just that they're poor. They're deeply poor. You know, we use the language still today, which is hard in actuality to realize. We talk of people being dirt poor. Dirt poor would refer to houses without a floor. They don't have wood and other things. We talk about remodeling our houses, and we think, well, you know, I've had to take a hit. Instead of getting the good tile, I had to get the laminate flooring. And we think, well, we don't have much. Well, dirt poor speaks of those who had no flooring. Well, here, what Paul's getting at is the people, the Christians of Macedonia, were, as in our language, dirt poor. And yet, notice, in the abundance of what? Of their joy. And their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. He explains this more fully in verses 11 and 12. Now therefore, perform the doing of it, that is what you desire to do, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man hath, and not according to that he hath not. What's the point? He's not saying that we shouldn't give much if we have much. He's saying we should give liberally, Because we love much, and yet the liberality of our giving is obviously going to be in accordance to the measure allotted to us. Well, we'll see much more, of course. But Christ is seeing that. Look at this poor widow. She gave less than one of our pennies, and yet Christ says she gave more than all. Now consider then as we open this two main things. First, that God is not impressed by the mere outward measurement of our service. And secondly, that God delights in the spiritual sincerity of our service. The first, God's not impressed by the mere measurement of outward service. And so we can see this in Christ Himself. Christ, though seeing, takes no great notice of or interest in those who give much out of much. And so, of course, you can get at this just by the idea of percentages, right? So if you have $100 and you give 10%, you give $10. If you have $10 and you give 10%, you give a dollar. You give proportionately the same amount. But someone who only has $10 and gives 9 has given tremendously more percentage-wise than the one who gives $10 and had $100. This is simple and basic. And whereas Christ is not reproving the little gifts, He's commending the great gift of faith. But notice, He doesn't say, look at these things. And you'll see that this is, in some sense, something bound up in our hearts. Notice immediately what follows this passage in verses 5 and 6. And as some spake of the temple, elsewhere we find this to be as disciples, it's not just some you know, no, nameless people. It's his disciples who speak of the temple and they speak of how it's adorned with goodly stones and gifts. Look at the wonder of this building. Christ doesn't say, you're right. This is an amazing thing. We ought to ponder it and be overwhelmed by it. He says, as for these things which ye behold, the days will come 
in which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. Isn't it interesting that in the same chapter he says that, he says, my words never fail. Isn't that interesting? You look at the outward things of glory and you're impressed by that. My words will never fail. What's he getting at? You need to have a revolution to prizing the things of God's kingdom most intimately concerned. Well, why is this that there's no great interest in the mere outward display? Well, one thing to note is all riches and all gifts belong to God already. Have you ever considered that? This is, of course, a fundamental premise by the fact that God's the creator of all creation. And so there are wars and fightings that take place, bickerings and lawsuits that take place over our possessions. And certainly there's the right of private property and these kinds of things. Peter acknowledges that when he speaks to Ananias. Listen, so long as it was in your possession, it was yours to do with as you wanted. But here's the point. Though it's right among men to acknowledge our private possessions, and it's right to defend our private possessions, as Christians we need to step back further and say, the private possessions we have ultimately are God's given to us to steward. They're His, which He's committed into our care to use well both for our good and our neighbor and ultimately all to the glory of God. Remember, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There's this, of course, movement which in many ways is meaningless where you can name a star after somebody. You can pay the 30, 40, 50 bucks. You can say, look what I've gotten for you. I've gotten you a star named after you. Now, perhaps you've done that and there's some interest in that, but just think for a moment what that really does. In fact, in these kinds of uh, so-called agreements, it makes the statement that there's not actually anything you own. You have this document that says you've done it, right? But God calls all the stars by name. Why? Because He owns them all. He owns all the planets of the galaxy and the universe, and thus all of the materials that are in them. He owns every human being. He owns all of what they have. Everything is His. So think for a moment about this. What is there that you can give to God that will make Him say, wow, this is impressive. You could mine all of the gold from the deep regions of the earth and you could purify it as much as gold can be purified. And you could give it to the cause of the purest interest of Christ's church. And the gold itself that you're giving was His to begin with. It's true as well of our skills and gifts. The abilities we have. We saw that in Exodus 35. When all of these things that are being done by the wise-hearted women, which means skillful women, able to weave fine things, beautiful things, He made them wise. He gave them those gifts. And He even specifies regarding Bezalel and Aholiab that these who are to be the leaders, the heads as it were, of this work of constructing all of the things of the tabernacle, I have made them skillful. So in all of your business that makes money, in all of your activities which procures for you and your home, remember this. That is God's gift 
to you. And so all that comes by virtue of those things is already His. Moreover, riches and gifts, as noted, are given by God directly. Notice how this is mentioned in 1 Chronicles and chapter 29. 1 Chronicles and chapter 29. Here, of course, we have another record of wonderful things, many things that are outstanding. And yet, notice what is mentioned here by Solomon in verse 12 as he's rejoicing. He says, Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. In thine hand is power and might, and in thy hand it is to make great and to give strength unto all. Notice verse 16. O Lord our God, all this store that we have prepared to build thee in house for thine holy name cometh of thine hand and is all thine own. So notice, it's all His and our ability to receive it and use it and employ it and give it is by His provision. This helps us in a number of things when we think in the terms of religious service. So there are people who stand out as great servants of the Lord, men of prayer, women of faith, and so on, throughout the history of the church. And there's no denying their exercise of grace. And yet, we're to be kept back from hero worship because we have to realize that their activity of faith and hope and love, their service in ways that far outdoes our own, is fundamentally because God worked within them to will and to do of these great things. And so ultimately, all glory goes to God. By the way, this will fix, by God's grace, jealousy. It will slay that jealous principle in our hearts. When we, instead, we see families that are prospering. We see perhaps businessmen who are gaining wealth. We see churches that flourish. And we think to ourselves, crossing our arms, well, why them and not us? You know, it causes us to step back and say, praise God that God is at work in these. See, there's help by this truth. Moreover, why is it that God is not impressed by the mere outward measurement of our service? Because the greatest glory in this world and offered by the world is infinitely beneath God Himself. There are houses that you and I view and we say, you know what, that's, that's tremendous. It would be an honor for me to be invited into that house. It would be an honor for me to sit at the table. You remember when Solomon, with all of his glory, was there, and the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, came, and she witnessed the wonder of all that took place, the order, the skill, the magnitude of his riches and wealth. She professed and stated that it wasn't told me the half of the glory of your kingdom. And oh, what a privilege it is for me to have witnessed these things. And there are things like that that we would acknowledge in a heartbeat. But here's the point. The greatest glory that the world has to offer is not just beneath, but infinitely beneath God. There's nothing you can give that will ever build up unto God. None of that is what impresses God. You can see this later in 2 Chronicles. We read earlier, just a moment ago, in 1 Chronicles. Notice 2 Chronicles 
and chapter 6 and verse 8, we have here, or verse 18 rather, we have here the testimony of David. Now then, O Lord God of Israel, let thy word be verified which thou hast spoken unto thy servant David. This is Solomon's prayer. But will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house which I have built. As far as the temples that were constructed, all were beneath the glory of Solomon's temple. And yet, here as Solomon says, what we've built and what we are building is infinitely beneath you. Brethren, this is needed for us. What impresses man does not impress God. Now, we need to balance that as we will. This is not to deny that the outward gifts of men given by faith are received with gladness by God. It's simply to say that when men say, what a gift, because of the measurement, the grandeur, the amount, the quantifiable aspects of it, there's no measuring of that by God saying that same idea. Rather, God looks, as we noted, at the heart. Well, let's look now, secondly, that God delights in the spiritual sincerity of service. And you see that here, of course. This widow gave two mites. Now, this is not an argument for us to start saying things like, we need to give pennies, or we need to say, you know, that um, we need to give everything that we have of one day. It's simply to note that Christ is, is commending this sacrificial service of faith and love by this widow. So notice a few things. Perhaps we can think of them as ingredients to spiritual sincerity in serving the Lord. The Scriptures speak of this quite clearly. One thing to note, and is tangibly evident in this widow, is that for spiritual sincerity to exist in our service, there must be the exercise of faith. Without faith, Hebrews 11.6 says, it is impossible to please God. There must be the exercise of faith. Now, preeminently, it must be that faith is exercised upon the person of Christ because there's no peace with God. There's no fellowship with God. There's no relationship with God apart from Christ Jesus. But within that relationship, there must be the exercise of faith among all of our circumstances. We're trusting the Lord as we serve Him. Whether that's in this way of giving, or whether that's in the way of teaching our children, or worshiping the Lord, or other aspects of service to His name. You know, online we have a witness for Christ. Christ doesn't look, let's put it this way, He doesn't look at the quantifiable numbers of posts you have on social media. He doesn't look at the numbers of likes that you have and say, I am well honored by that person. Because He looks well closer at the matter of the heart. Are those things done trusting Me and for My glory? So faith must be exercised. And you can see that in the widow. She takes, at the very least, her day's earnings. For the sake of the argument, we can grant. Perhaps it's all that she had. If it is so, it's not much more. How do you go lower than a seventh piece of brass? 
Whatever the case, she's giving, as it were, a massive sum relative to her own need and provision. What is that but the display of faith? We're giving away and we're trusting the Lord. It's similar to the Proverbs, cast your bread upon many waters, right? There's the throwing it out and there's the looking to the Lord. There's the looking to Him in faith, trusting Him. There's the labor of ministers and pastors and elders, but also of parents and Christians as they're laboring day after day, week after week, and they're seeing little, if any, growth, perhaps with their children or with their members or with their own hearts. And they're saying, Lord, what is this? But to trust in Him, Lord, I will not grow weary in well-doing, for I trust Your Word that says that those who sow with tears shall reap with songs of rejoicing. There's faith that must permeate all the activity of our service to Him. So let's make it more directly relevant to ourselves. We come to this church, and we come and we're convinced that it's not just you know better, but we're convinced the Scriptures command that His public praise must be by the inspired book of Psalms. So what, we're, what are we saying? We're saying that right praise demands the right material. It's not permitted for us to invent things to offer to God. Let's grant that, even if not everyone's there for a moment. Here's the point. It doesn't matter the number of times you sing the Psalms if it is sung without faith. It doesn't matter if you multiply the singing of Psalms and yet faith is never exercised in the means of grace. We're convinced, and this is less controversial in the church today, though it's still controversial, that preaching is the fundamental and primary means by which sinners are converted. And so we prioritize the preaching of His Word. And so we do things like we buy books of sermons and we read those books. We get on sermon audio. We download sermons and we listen to those sermons. We come when the doors of the church are open. We're here to hear the preaching. But here's the point. At the end of life, God's not going to say, look at all of the tally marks of all of the sermons that you listen to. And look at this meager few that represent the majority of Christians of your age. Well, you've done well and they've done unwell. No. Because he's not interested in the quantifying of things. The question he's, as it were, asking is, is there faith in the exercise of these ordinances? Faith must be sincerely exercised if there is any sincere service to the Lord. And here's this woman doing so. Moreover, the twin of faith, of course, in God's grace, is that love must be exercised. It's an astounding thing. It came in the Lord's providence when on occasion I was thinking, how, what can I do in order to love God? And remembering, well, maybe if the Lord made me a martyr, then I would have the comfort of knowing that I love God. But notice 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And in verse 3 it says, Though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. But notice what's right before it, relative more to the circumstances of our text, Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and have not charity, it profiteth me 
nothing. You see, love is fundamentally required if there is any worthy commendation of the service in the Lord's name. Love must be exercised. Without love, there is no true service to the Lord. This is one of the reasons that the whole of the Ten Commandments, indeed all of what God requires, can be summarized by the first great commandment is what? Well, some in the world would say, well, the first commandment is do all of these great things for God. But Christ says, no, love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and soul and mind and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. Notice in Matthew chapter 10, and there at verse 42, Matthew 10, and at verse 42, we have, Whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. This orientation of loving service in the least of things. You see, there's no doubt, Christ actually makes this quite plain on the last day, that there will be an upheaval of judgment where men thought, look at the great things done. Christ is going to say, this is nothing. And where men thought, where is there anything? He's going to proclaim to the whole of the universe, look what this one did in faith and love to my name. Love exercised in service to God is what God takes notice of. All of this, of course, demands self-denial. And we start to see all of a sudden the beauty of this widow's offering. How many times do we make the argument, I can't do it because, well, I would have to give up fill-in-the-blank. And what's the the fill-in-the-blank? It's often comforts, recreations, things of that sort. She's giving not because she's giving up a vacation, you understand. She's not giving up a new car. She's not giving up a new house. She's not giving up these extras. She's giving up her day's provision at least, perhaps her whole provision. Everything that marks out the means by which she would get food and drink is now offered to the Lord. And we have people in our day who say, well, if I serve the Lord in that way, I would have to order my schedule differently. We have people today who say, if I gave more to the Lord, I would have to go without fill in the block of some streaming service. If I did that, I would have to give up coffee several times a week at my favorite coffee shop. See, it's not that those things are wrong, but it's challenging the issues of the heart. Am I willing to deny myself in faith and love to the Lord and serving Him? Mothers face this when they say, if I'm going to instruct my children, this means I'm going to have to step away from some of my own investment of time with my friends because my children need this care. The world says, don't worry about that. You know, make sure you have your friendship groups, your social groups, be active here, there, and everywhere. And in the meantime, children suffer because mothers 
avoid nurturing their children. Fathers are to discipline their children. Fathers specifically are to discipline their children. What happens with that? Fathers say, well, I'm tired. It's been a long day at work and all of these things. And yet, of course, to discipline themselves with self-denial then would lead them to train up their children. You see, all of this requires self-denial. Christ said it. If any man would be my disciple, what is it? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, brethren, let's think for a moment. These actions, faith, love, self-denial, are often over common things that the world doesn't really take notice of. Giving a cup of cold water to a child? There's no fanfare for that. You're not going to be interviewed by some news agency to say, this is an amazing thing. All societies watching this tell us, what were you doing when you gave this cup to a child? Well, you know, it's not really about me. I was just about... No, none of that happens. But here's the point. God sees it. God records it. Christ sees it. Christ will openly acknowledge it. And your service of faith and love and self-denial, though unnoticed, perhaps by your wife or husband or your children or your parents, your pastor, the church, or anyone at all, is not unnoticed by Christ. Isn't that part of our temptation? Satan knows how to push us this way, pull us that way. He pushes and we start to push back and then he pulls us and trips us up. And so we start to feel, you know what? I need to get more diligent. I need to serve more. I need to deny myself. We start doing it and then no one notices. And we start to say, wait a second, time out. Doesn't anybody see what I'm doing? And at that moment, it's revealed why we're doing it. We're not doing it for the Lord. We're doing it to be seen of men. And isn't that what Christ has openly, repeatedly, regularly condemned in the scribes and Pharisees? When you pray, don't be like them who love to stand in the public places and make long prayers for to be seen of men. For I tell you, they have their reward. He's not interested in our building up of ourselves. That's not what service is in Christ's name. It's in trusting, loving, and serving the Lord. And when others don't take notice, that should be no challenge to us because it's not to them that we're doing it. It's to the Lord. So mothers, when you train your children and the world ridicules you for doing so, you shouldn't take much offense by that because in heaven, you have Christ saying, well done. And husbands, when you're denying yourself to spend and serve your wife and your children and the workplace and the world says, well, that's not that important or that manly. Why don't you do more on the world? Christ is looking at you saying, well done. And this encompasses all forms of service in Christ's name. But for it to be encompassed in Christ's name, it must be by faith and in love to Christ. She gives of her poverty to the Lord. Faithfulness with what God has given honors Him. Notice, Christ has already established this in Luke chapter 19. 
we often ignore this truth. We think if I had more money, then I'd do something great. If I had more time, then I'd do something great. If I had more of a reach, then I'd do something great. But all that's to mistake a fundamental thing. Notice in Luke 19 at verse 16. Then came the first, the first what? The first servant to whom the master had given a pound. Then came the first, saying, Thy Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said to him, You've not done as well as your brother. Is that what he says? He doesn't. He says rather, likewise to him, be thou also over five cities. What's he commending? He's commending faithful, loving service with what God has given. He's given me a pound and maybe my use of it doesn't reach the same hundredfold of another's, but maybe it just reaches sixtyfold. Well, God's pleased and honored and he delights in that. Maybe a preacher's preaching is rarely met with open conversions, whereas another is met with hundreds of souls converted on one occasion. The Lord is pleased that the man who stood before the people declared His Word faithfully and sincerely, and He's honored by that. Perhaps it is that a mother and father deny themselves, invest in their children, and their children don't own the faith. And yet the Lord doesn't say, what have you done? If the mother and father was faithful... He says, well done. You see, the Lord is interested in our faithfulness with what He's given. And it's up to Him to bring forth and measure out the harvest. That's the point. It's faithfulness. Trusting Him. Loving Him. That honors Him. Well, as we close, here's something for us, doubtlessly, to examine. What of my service to the Lord? Whether I give little or I give much. Whether I'm singing tons of psalms throughout the week, or I only sing them on the Lord's day. Whether I'm reading my Bible five chapters a day, or three verses a day. Is my service to Him offered in faith? Is it motivated by love? Is it the exercise of self-denial? And is it done in faithfulness? Because if it is so, the Lord looks with delight upon those things. And the same can be multiplied to every aspect of our service in our marriages, in our parenting, in the church, in our places of work. The Lord sees with eyes that see what is truly of worth. How is it with me? It should convict us if in our thoughts we're saying, well, I give more than the other person. Or it should also convict us if we become disheartened because we give less than the other person. Because it's not about how much more or how much less I'm giving than the other person. Sometimes we can do this in spiritual things. Well, you know, John Welsh of Air prayed eight hours a day. I only pray 30 minutes a day. Well, there's something there perhaps to make us open up to realize there's more that can be done. Luther prayed all of this time. And he said, when he had special work to do, I need more time in prayer. And we say, whoa, there's something there for me. 
but we can easily get into a misstep. And we start to think the secret is the quantifying of it. But here's the actual secret. The reason that their quantity started to grow was because they began with the exercise of faith and love and self-denial. And it's often that we overstep that first step, which then plummets us into an abyss of false conviction and frustration. Our need is not so much to measure by the outward quantifiable aspect as to start with the sincerity of offering to the Lord in faith through Jesus Christ and love to God and self-denial and faithfulness. Well, you, believer, doubtlessly there's something for each of us to confess. But it may be that you give little, perhaps compared to others almost unnoticeably, of your time and energy. You're not in front of others all the time. Uh, Your amount of giving to the church is less than others. Well, here is the comfort for you. If what you give, if how you serve, if what you're doing is done in faith and love, self-denial and faithfulness to the Lord, the Lord sees from heaven. Let's start there as we close. The Lord sees what you're doing. This poor widow is not mentioned to us with a name. But Christ saw her. Her name doesn't ring through the halls of church history and elicit from us, that was a great person. Look at all the books he wrote. Look at all the sermons he preached. Look at all the things he did. Look at the oceans he crossed. Look at the land he traversed. None of that's the case. She gave two mites, and yet Christ saw it and was well pleased with it. Doesn't that challenge us? Because we often make the mistake of thinking the extraordinary is really the measure of service to the Lord. Whereas the Lord's saying, what are you doing? It's the ordinary service in faith and love that is extraordinary in my kingdom. Your faithful service to His name in your ordinary callings is what promotes the praise of God and receives the commendation of God to you. Sure, if you're a minister, you'll have more open and outward display. If you're an elder, likewise, and so on. If you're a rich businessman, you'll have more open display. That's true. But none of that garners the attention of God unless their service is in faith and love and self-denial and faithfulness. And so the Lord exhorts us unto encouragement that we, with our faith and love, our self-denial and our faithfulness, serve Him and He is glorified thereby. Well, may God strengthen us in such service to His name now and always. Would you stand with me for prayer?